Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today we begin at the end. Death. These days it's everywhere and in so many ways. And for as long as we've had death to contend with, we've had people help us cope with the end of life, like death doula, Elua Arthur. The role of the death doula is one of support and empowerment. And if I can empower somebody to care for their dying themselves, if people can do the things that they can to be with those that they love while they're dying, then I've done my job. Plus, hear from Howard K. Hill, whose funeral services have adapted to life under COVID-19. We call it a drive-through funeral service. This has allowed for more people to be able to have that traditional feel where they can view the body, which is a very, very, very important aspect of the African-American funeral experience. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. For this first episode, we're starting at the end. Death. Without the knowledge of our impending death, our entire species would be different. Knowledge of our mortality affects almost everything about us. And lately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, death is in the headlines, it's on our phones, it's in the air. Today you'll hear from funeral director Howard K. Hill on how he's had to adapt his practices to be safe and to serve during the coronavirus. But first, in December of 2019, which feels like a thousand years ago, I taped this conversation with Elua Arthur. She's the founder of Going With Grace in Los Angeles, where she is a death doula. She has this YouTube channel at Going With Grace where she posts these 60-second videos about death. Everything from pondering the fact that we all pass our death day every year but don't know it, to things you should definitely not say to someone who's grieving. Later, I catch up with Elua on how she and her work in death have changed since the pandemic hit in March, but first, our conversation from simpler times. Elua told me that a death doula is someone who does all the non-medical and holistic support of the dying person and their family, and, and you don't have to have a diagnosis to ask for this kind of help. Anyone who becomes aware that they will someday die can engage with a death doula and develop a comprehensive end-of-life plan. Now, the title, Death Doula, is novel to so many people, but really, human beings have, in one way or another, been doing the work she's been doing for as long as we've had deaths to attend to. So why does the idea of her job seem so novel? I asked Elua, what happened to us? How did we start putting death at arm's length? Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> Not enough. Right? Not nearly enough. So many things happened to us. Industrialization happened. Mm. People moving away from the nuclear family and from the home, like the home base, that happened to us. Also, I think as we became more youth-obsessed, mm. as we started glorifying people that seemed to stay forever young, I think Hollywood had a lot to do with it, we started shunning death. Uh, it's, it's no longer happening in the homes. It's not happening where we see it. It's happening someplace far away. It was so rare. The other day I saw a woman on the street who was quite elderly. You know, her, her neck was certainly slipping, so her head 
generally face down. She had a cane. She walked really, really slow. And she was such a different sight than what I'm used to seeing on the streets here in Los Angeles. I stared at her for a while, like, wow, we don't see this. But there's plenty of people that old all around. We just don't see them at all. We push death away somehow. Yet it's just aging, dying. It's it's part of how this thing goes. We just don't acknowledge it anymore. Yeah. And I, you'd mentioned in one of your videos, it's it's like, we can't imagine non-existence. It's like asking a fish to imagine life on land. It's just, it, we, we don't wrap our heads around it. And I find that when I talk about it with my friends at parties, <laughs> I think people feel almost like, don't talk about it. If you talk about it, it's going to make us more likely to die, which of course is absurd. But there is this weird like superstition, I think, I feel. It's so weird because it doesn't make us any more likely to die. We're already 100% dying. Like it doesn't get more sure than that, you know? People are like, oh, if you say it, it's going to happen. I'm like, it's going to happen. Yeah. It just might not happen tomorrow, but it's definitely going to happen. I am going to die. Maybe not today, but one day for sure, for yeah. sure. And any second now, maybe on the way, hopefully not on the way out from this interview, but like, you know, anything could happen. You can't jinx yourself. Anything can happen. We cannot jinx this. It's already certain. And I feel like there's something different about you and in the, the fervor that you have for this, the fact that you not only are unafraid to talk about death, but you see how it can really, truly, positively impact people. And I feel like there's this awe when I think about death, I feel small and I feel great when I feel small in a way because, you know, in our lives, we're, we're the biggest thing. And so when you talk and you think about death, you are in a state of awe. Do you feel that? Is that something where, where that comes into your life as well when you talk about death? When I think about it, I feel a lot of things. I mean, I certainly also feel like the sadness and the grief and the loss that people are experiencing as a result. But I also sometimes see the awe and the wonder, and I look at it with a lot of curiosity. What we generally do is the things that we don't know and can't understand, we fear, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'm like, yeah, we actually don't know. There are a lot of ideas that we have, but it's a complete unknown. And so rather than just be afraid of it, I could say, I wonder. I wonder what awaits me on the other side, if there is one at all. I wonder what the process will be like. I wonder when it'll be. I wonder how I'll feel about it. Just approaching it with curiosity creates space for a perspective other than this one that is terrifying. And that's not something that we're all capable of doing because it does scare a lot of folks. And I get that through and through, through and through. Do you find that either with yourself or with the clients that you work with that religion is the the powerhouse that it is in so many people's lives, especially the closer they get to death. Is is religion a big part of what you're working with? Or is it is it something is it something else? Is it do you step away from religion? Do you accommodate? How do you work with religion when it comes to the dying people you're working with and their families? We totally accommodate. My work is secular in nature that no matter whatever the tr faith tradition, we're down to support. What I find is that a lot of people have questions at the end of life. And here's a little secret, okay, between me and you, okay? just between the two of mm -hmm, us, sure. that I'm finding that even the most religious amongst us question what happens to consciousness after death. Because up until that point, for all of us, religion is a belief structure, right? It's just a belief. And a belief remains a belief until it's tested and then there's evidence for it and then becomes a fact. But it's just a belief all throughout life. It's about to become very real when we die. And so I think nearing the the end of life, religious people start to say, wait a minute, is this actually true? I'm about to find out. <laughs> I wonder 
sometimes when when I find out that somebody I know has died, I think, wow, they know if there's yeah. something else they know right now. This whole time we knew each other, they didn't know, but now not even they know. That's crazy. I think so too. I think it is so wild that there is something out there that we have no evidence for. You know, even people that have had near-death experiences, mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's so rad. Like, you made it to the waiting room. Like, you got to the <laughs> elevator bank. You know what I mean? Like, you know more than I certainly do. I'm still on the street. But, like, somebody took the elevator all the way and they didn't come back. Because yeah. the ones that make it there don't come back. Not one. I mean... We, Jesus, maybe, but even yeah. he still is like, peace out after a few days. <laughs> I'm back. I'm gone again. I'm gone. Yeah. I want to talk about grief. A lot of the work you do is logistical. It's also about grief. Um, I've been interested in death and grief since I was a kid, which I didn't realize was okay to talk about until I'm older, although I wish I could meet a kid that like talked about grief and death more often. That would be really cool. And I've had friends who've had deep losses, but I'm almost 40 years old and I've never suffered what I consider to be a really deep loss. And part of me is really relieved about that. Like I've dodged a lot of bullets, you know, almost 40 and I haven't been through this. And part of me is like, when this happens, I am totally screwed because I've, I've gone this whole time without going through it. But I'm hoping that my own curiosity about death and grief and hearing from folks like you who report back from the experience of helping people with it will help me wrap my head around it when the time comes. And I know that when it happens, that there's not one right way to grieve, right? But because I haven't been through it in terms of how I see it, what are ways to sort of pre-grieve? So I'm going to start by shattering this idea you have that maybe if you'd done it before, it would be easier for you the second time, because it really isn't. Mm that people that have suffered loss over and over and over again still find themselves in the throes of grief. There are ways, there are things that we can do to understand how we grieve, but I don't think that there are things that can actually properly prepare us for when somebody we love dies and the grief that happens as a result of that. We generally, just by being human, are grieving often, like... I got my heart broken this year. I grieved a lot. (laughs) We grieve when we go through a change in identity. Even some of the happy ones from maiden to mother, there's still a grief of the life beforehand. Through those experiences, I think we start to understand how it is that we grieve. But understanding that doesn't make us necessarily prepared. I don't know what will happen when my mother dies my father dies. I don't know how I'll grieve then. I have an idea based on how I've done it before, but I don't think I can do anything to prepare myself for that wallop that those deaths are going to be. Mm -hmm. I've been around death quite a bit, but I always say, particularly to the students that I work with in my death doula courses, which is if you've seen one death, you've seen one death. One. And so this is another space that invites in curiosity about who we are and how we do things what we think we know about ourselves or what we think we know about death or grief. And grief just has a great way of turning everything upside down for better or worse. Truly. Kind of a relief to hear. Like you want to control as much as you can about life. And so you try to anticipate how you'd feel. And if there truly, as you say, it makes a lot of sense if there truly is no way to prepare in a way you can kind of let go. 
Yeah. I mean, we can do the practical things, you know. We yeah. can get our affairs together. We can have the big conversations. We can make sure we don't have regrets. We can do all that stuff. But it's still probably going to be a sucker punch that you weren't ready for. I actually was just talking with a woman this morning on Instagram where a lot of my conversations about death and dying happen in the direct messages. And they were preparing for a um, medical aid in dying death. Her mother had chosen to yesterday, Monday, as the day of her death. And she was like, I knew it was coming. We've been talking about it for a while. Her mother had been sick for a while. She's just like, she still did not at all feel prepared for what it was that was to come. How can you? That human size hole that's left in hearts and consciousness after somebody dies. It's impossible. I just recently went to a funeral of um, a family member who died at 30, and um, it left behind a 29-year-old wife and like a 15-month-old kid. And in the service, they talked about sadness and grief, but nobody talked about anger. And I wished that we could talk more about anger because people really do often feel robbed and furious at the world. And I want to play a clip from one of your video series at Going With Grace about a different way we can see it. Have you noticed how societally we tend to view death as some sort of thief, like this sinister thing that comes to snatch away grandparents and to rob us of seeing kids grow old and to take away whole futures? And let's not get started on the Grim Reaper because boy, I got some thoughts about that. Thinking of death as a thief suggests an underlying belief that we are entitled to that thing that can be taken away, as though we're entitled to live to 75, or we are entitled to our next birthday. Shoot, we're not entitled to the very next breath, and we know that to be true. Life is not a given that can be taken. And so rather than think of death as this thing that can take it away from us, maybe we can experience gratitude that we got to experience it at all. Ugh. <laughs> Entitlement. That is such a big one. And gratitude is a kind of acceptance. I feel like there's this scale of acceptance, right? Like on one side, you've got, you know, this consuming anxiety about death, right? The, you're paralyzed, you terrorize, death is looming. And on the other side, you've got this, you know, Buddhist acceptance that you are a sand mandala to be washed away by the river, this impermanent <laughs> thing. And then there's this big fat old middle that so many of us find ourselves in, knowing that somewhere in our minds, death is inevitable. But, you know, let's just not dwell on this. And so this obviously the constantly terrorized state is not where anybody wants to be. But where on that scale do you think it is the most productive to be? Like, how do we use that gratefulness to in that acceptance to battle the entitlement that we're feeling? How do we balance that out? That's a really good question. I think the best that we can do is use it, use this looming, I'm going to die, to fuel us in our own lives and to, as much as possible, experience the gratitude for the little things along the way, because those are the things that we miss when we're getting close to the end of life. And so this constant you know, I'm going to die, and so let me do these things that matter to me, along with, wow, and look at all the things I've already got to do already. Yeah, totally. Peter Sheldahl of The New Yorker, they published a piece from him. He found out that he's got lung cancer, and he wrote, Oddly or not, I find myself thinking about death less than I used to. I thought that I might be kidding myself in my explorations of the subject while my life stretched ahead of me to an invisible horizon. But no, the thinking cut channels in which I now slip along. They involve acceptance. Why me? Why not me? In point of fact, me. 
Dying is my turn to survey life from its far, now near shore. These extra months are a luxury that I hope to have put to good use. To have put. See, while here, not here. Like a camera situated nowhere and taking in every last detail of the pulsating world. Do you find that some of your clients, as death approaches, find themselves thinking less about death? First of all, that is so beautiful. I am moved to tears. Like, they're actual liquids in my eyes. Okay. I find that, well, some, some, I sat with a woman yesterday who is really grappling with the big questions. And during our conversation, she said, I wish I would have spent a lot more time actually thinking about this because I wouldn't have to do all the thinking about it now. Similarly to what um, the piece you just read was saying, yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. Like, I think the benefit of us thinking about it beforehand is that we have some clarity on what our other questions, which remain, are. Not that we have answers, but we know where we still have work to do. And that when we get there, we're not then trying to do all of it at once. Leave room for everything else that'll come. And I think there's so much that comes. So much that comes. I mean, even doing this work and butting up against it all the time, I'm still always surprised by what people are thinking and concerned with when they're getting close to the end of their lives. After people are done listening to this episode and they think, oh, all right, I'm, I'm down, I got it, I got to start prepping, what, what can I do, where do I start and besides looking you up and subscribing to your, all your social medias? <laughs> so what are some of the priorities people can take right after they're done listening to this? I think a great first step is to tell somebody about it. Because that's going to open a conversation about death and dying with that person. And that, as a practical step, it's really important to start thinking about what your wishes are for the end of your life. How do you want to be treated? What kind of treatment do you actually want to receive? What are your thoughts on life support? Who would you like to make your decisions for you in the event that you can't? Also start thinking about things like what you want done with your body. Start also thinking about your possessions. Go through some of them if you can. Get rid of some of them if you can. Death cleaning. Let's Death cleaning is a thing. <laughs> Although I really like stuff. I like pretty <laughs> things. And so I tend to hold on to a lot of things. But I'm also thinking very clearly about the fact that somebody's going to have to get rid of this after I die. And so it does curb my shopping. <laughs> but so if you can't get rid of things or you want to keep bringing things in, start thinking about who you want to use that thing after you're done with it and make sure that they know particularly for any sentimental possessions. Look at your passwords, your accounts, your finances. Where's your money? Are people going to be able to access your money after you die? Who are your beneficiaries on your life insurance policies if you have them? Do you still want them to be your beneficiaries? Do you have a safe? Does anybody else know how to open it? Safety deposit box. Start doing some of the practical things. And then once you've done a few of those, then I would really think it's very cool to start thinking about your life itself. Like writing your own obituary. Yeah. And think not only about your accomplishments and what you've done, but what you've really enjoyed about this weird little ride we're all on. What do you like about it? What's been your greatest joy? When are the times where you feel most alive? And write it all down like one big fat Google Doc. <laughs> sure, but make sure somebody else has a password to that account all right. so we can get in it. Okay? Okay, thank you. All right, Elua, are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah! How do you want to die? 
I want to have some disease that I know that the death is coming. Mm. I want to die at home. I'd like to be outside. I'd like it to be around sunset so I can see the colors change because I really like that time of day. I'd like to hear wind in the trees. I'd like people around, but I want them to be kind of silent because I don't like a lot of noise. I'd like them to clap once I take my last breath. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, I want them to be like, good job, girl. <laughs> and scene. All right, so next question. What do you hope your last words before the applause will be? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. A lot of gratitude, I hope, for the people that loved me. A lot of gratitude for this really strange, wondrous life I lead. Uh, gratitude to be able to use my skills and my gifts and my talents to serve other people. Gratitude for the sky, for its beautiful colors. Just overall gratitude for this sensory experience that I get to have while I'm still living because I don't know what awaits me elsewhere if there is an elsewhere. Yeah. According to Steve Jobs' daughter, his final words were, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hope that's how I feel at least. Yeah. Aldous Huxley's last words, or at least they say, was 100 micrograms, please, of LSD, because apparently he was shot up with LSD as he was dying. And then he said, ah, yes, I thought so. <sighs> you just gave me goosebumps. Right? <laughs> Juicy. What would you want on your gravestone? Used up. <laughs> she did it, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the, what I'd like is Kion Wolf, she really went for it. Yeah. Same vein. Yeah. All right, last lightning round question. What do you think happens after we die? I don't know. I don't even know what I think happens after we die. Mm -hmm. I like to think I just open up into everything and feel tremendous peace with that. But I don't know what that means even. I like the idea of continuing on someplace that we haven't even thought of yet certainly possible and how cool and there's so many different permutations of that too because if we also start thinking about and just to give you a little glimpse of the nut so that happens in my brain all the time if we are looking at time as something that is non-linear at all then what if we also get to experience other bodies other life forms other everything at the same time that we also existed and what if it's not just one of us right like we see ourselves often as a single soul so we, why am i not maybe i'm 17 souls or i was three souls when i was 14 years old but now i'm 27 souls and later on i'll be 118 souls sort of all wrapped in one as we change that's possible it's all possible maybe i'm you oh i like that <laughs> we don't know we don't know, and I just love the not knowing. It certainly does add a lot of mystery to life, and mystery is really where the juice is because then we can fill it with anything we want it to be. That was Death Doula, a Lua Arthur, from a conversation back in December. After the break, we catch up, find out what she's been seeing in people now that death is front of mind like it's never been before, especially for the black community. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. 
We've been hearing from death doula Elua Arthur. Her job has been to counsel and prepare people for the end of their lives, to create what they feel is a good death. But lately, a good death is hard to come by. And since death has been at the center of national and international attention in the past couple weeks and months due to COVID-19 and the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, I reconnected with Elua for an update. We can't have funerals as we knew them now. We can't have wakes or memorial services as we knew them now. We can't hug our friends who've lost loved ones. We can't do so many of these rituals that we've developed so we can grieve together. I asked Elua what she's hearing lately and how she's adapting. I heard a story about a woman who dropped her son off at the hospital because he wasn't feeling well. He'd been ill and it looked like he probably had COVID-19. She dropped him off at the hospital, literally never saw him again. Last time she saw him, he was in a casket. And the intense grieving that comes when somebody dies anyway, but then to layer it with not being able to say goodbye in the ways that we understand is creating, I think, what is really fertile ground for very complicated and compounded grief. The thing that we can do, though, is think about the things that, like, what is the point of this? Like, why do we have funerals? What is the intention behind this? And do our best to recreate some of it or pull elements of it out and create them for ourselves so that we can have some of it when we can't have it all and can't have it the way that we've had in the past. At the same time, I wonder how much this era of adapting, really quick adapting, may lead us to developing some new traditions. I'm hopeful. That is the best case scenario, is that we see what actually wasn't working and we make things that properly work. Because what we've done, we've done for a long time. and We've been doing them that way because that's how we do them. But now we can't do them that way, so let's make something new. Maybe that works better. And those things had to begin happening in the first place at some point. Somebody had to figure out those traditions and create those traditions. So why can't we make some too, especially in this era? Yeah, it's time to get creative. There is a video that you did about comorbidities and death not being a failure. So talk me through what you mean by that. So comorbidities generally mean the other elements in somebody's health history that might make them more susceptible to something or the other things that in real talk could have killed them. And so when deaths are often reported from COVID-19, they also often talk about their comorbidities. They also had diabetes and hypertension and she was morbidly obese and, 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 and all these ands make it seem as though that person was somebody who was going to die anyway. Oh, well, she was going to have a stroke and it was going to kill her anyway. So COVID just took her a little early. Like how rude, first of all, how rude. And next, it has the devastating potential of making us feel safe somehow. Oh, I get why she died from this because she was already sick or her body wasn't healthy to begin with. But the reality is that at any moment, any of us are susceptible to anything. Just because I don't have hypertension doesn't mean I'm not also going to have an aneurysm. We're all vulnerable all the time. Comorbidities, listing them primarily, creates this false illusion of us being safe and also them being expendable. Like it just sped it up. Yeah. Oh, well, they were going to die anyway. So, well, big surprise. We're all going to die anyway. Might not be from this, but some point something. What are some of your feelings as a Black woman who's seeing that there are no, you're shaking your head? So many feelings. Uh, sadness, anger, frustration. Sadness. 
sadness, sadness, sadness. The racial disparities in the deaths are alarming. The fact that they are being reported, but there doesn't seem to be any quick fix for them. There is no quick fix for them because it's systemic institutionalized racism. For centuries, this is what's been going on. What we do about it is we upend our entire system. That seems like a drastic fix, but that's what led us here. That's why Black people are dying at an alarming rate from a disease that isn't killing most of the people who come into contact with it. But now we have the numbers that are showing for the first time the incredible inequities in our system. Well, not for the first time. The numbers have been everywhere. They've been in education. The numbers are in prisons. The numbers are in the class system. The numbers are everywhere. They're everywhere. And so now we have new numbers and people are like, oh, yeah, that's so awful. But with no real solutions or anything to do about it. So it's just flat out sad. Yeah. It's flat out sad. Flat out sad. We haven't really needed any more proof than we already had about how deeply ingrained racism is in our country, especially. Do you think that this will change anything? No. I hope so, but no. I wish I could say yes, but I've been in a Black body long enough to know that these systems haven't changed for centuries. It's institutionalized unless we upend the entire system and go back 400 years and try to rewrite all of the disgusting things that have happened. There have been so many shootings of Black men over the years, and every time everybody says, enough, 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 and then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. And nothing has changed. And perhaps it's defeatist. But I also have lived in a Black body for quite some time. It's just one more example of what we all already know, but wish wasn't true. Yes. Well, some of us know. Right. Thank you for that correction. Yeah. Some of us know. Yeah. Um, so you're not able to do a lot of the work you did. You have your virtual trainings and Q&As, but you can't be with anybody at their bedside like none of us can. So how is that for you? <laughs> yeah. I've been butting up against myself a lot during this thing. And this is one of those areas where I've had to look at my desire to serve and where that comes from. It really evokes a lot of feelings of powerlessness and helplessness. And so that's something I've had to sit up against. Like, what are the things that make me feel like I have some value and worth in this world? Well, being of service. Well, I can't do that right now. So what you going to do about it, young lady? That's been tough. That's been tough. What I've been noticing, though, is that the role of the death doula is one of support and empowerment. And if I can empower somebody to care for their dying themselves, if people can do the things that they can to be with those that they love while they're dying, then I've done my job. Um, A few years ago, I moved a lot of my work online because I was traveling a lot for work and meeting people everywhere that still wanted me to support them. So I found ways to, you know, I can listen to how often somebody's breathing on the phone. I can do a ritual via Zoom. I can instruct somebody on how to bathe the body of somebody that they love over the phone. It's not ideal, but again, we're asking a lot of creativity out of us right now and we'll take it where we can get it. 
in a lot of ways right now, we're removed from death. We can't be at the bedside of the person who dies. We can't hug the people who just lost a, lost a husband. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And at the same time, because we're isolated, we're alone with it. We're just sitting with it. I don't know exactly what the question is here, but there's got to be something that comes out of that weird, twisty, vanilla chocolate cone of isolation and also intimate closeness with death. I love your optimism. (laughs) I love your way of looking at things. I also trust and believe that there is some use out of all this. So much of what's happening to me mirrors the experience of people nearing the end of life. And so we're getting an opportunity to practice right now. The stripping down that's occurring, really zeroing in on those things that matter to us, the things that are of real value, the intimacy, the sitting with myself. I've gotten to meet myself 150 times over and over and over again. When things go in a different direction than they are now, I'm not going to say back to normal, but when the world starts up again, I'm going to start piling things on again. And I hope that what I learned during this time can carry me through because I think that elements of who I saw now, I'm going to meet on my deathbed. That would be really powerful. As you're at the ocean saying, oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. While your friends yeah. gently applaud. Good well job, done, girl. young lady. Well done. You did it good. Oh, all right. I've got another question. Take me back to March. And when you knew things were really, really changing, what were you hearing? What were you seeing in terms of your business and this heightened sense of fear that people were experiencing? My inbox blew up with questions and requests for comment and collaboration and let's do and let's do. And this incredible giver community of mine was like, we need to be of support. What are we going to do? a lot of us moved into action while also really trying to balance our personal feelings around what was happening. That was tough because I was staring out the window crying about the suffering other people are experiencing while also being like, but we got to do something about it. Uh, Then I wasn't quite aware of the impact of the deaths and how people would be asked to grieve. Now we didn't have enough information, but I thought at the time people are experiencing a heightened death anxiety and that can be useful, can also be detrimental for those that actually suffer from medical or actually classifiable anxiety. But for people that are suffering from death anxiety and concerned about it, this could be a rich time to address it. And then a lot of end of life planning requests, as I mentioned, it was such a confusing time. Now it's like we got in the groove You know, I wake up and I don't have to remind myself every morning that we're in a pandemic. Oh, my God. The same thing happened to me the first like week or so. I would wake up and it would take like 10 to 12 seconds. And then I would remember. And it was like every morning waking up again. And I think that that probably happens a lot when you lose someone, when someone dies and you have to remember every morning that they've died. And maybe as time goes on, that time gets quicker and quicker after you open your eyes in the morning. But the same thing happened to me. And now I, now I remember right away. Now I remember right away. I don't even, I don't have to remember anymore. It's just there. Similar. I think very similar to after a death and the grieving process is, you know, for a while it's like you wake up and you think everything's normal and then the crushing weight of your loss. And then before long, it just becomes a part of you. You don't have to remember anymore. This whole pandemic is 
I don't want to say it's like practicing for death, but something like it. It is. It feels like it. I mean, all life is a practice for death. But this time in particular is heightened. It's like a, we put a magnifying glass on it. And who am I being? Like, I keep looking at who am I being? In the face of the things that I thought I understood being taken away, who am I? Who have I become? How am I responding to it? Same thing is going to happen one day when I get a diagnosis that I wasn't ready for. Oh, now what? Who am I going to be? Well, based on results, I spent three days staring out the window crying, and then I got to work. We'll see. Yeah. That is one of the advantages of continuing to live. It's like, remember when you were, remember when you had your first heartbreak and you thought the world would dissolve and you didn't understand how your heart kept going. And then you got your heart broken a couple more times and a couple more times. And by the seventh or eighth heartbreak, you realize like, okay, this sucks, but the world didn't fall apart the previous seven times. So at least I know that. And you can still be really sad and have all the feelings. But by existing, you know, like you're saying, you can you can predict and have, have that little bit of history to hold on to so you can make it through to the next thing. A little bit of history to hold on to. Granted, that time is going to be so different, right? Like when it's actually real and I'm not just imagining it or I'm not, but I've seen myself in practice so far. But that time is going to be also going to be dense. We'll see. Juicy, as you say. So juicy. So juicy. We're about out of time. I just wanted to ask one more thing about um, another video you posted about I don't know. It's always been I don't know. It's always going to be I don't know. But right now, it is really I don't know. And with everything up in the air and you can't go to funerals and you don't know how to grieve, is it okay if you grieve for someone you haven't met? And is it okay if you, you don't know what's okay? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So talk, if you would, about how important it is to say I don't know to get comfortable with our I don't knows. It's so necessary. Because I do this work, people often seem to think I know a lot about death, but I don't. I'm actually still very much alive. I've just been around people a bunch and they think that I know the answer. I had a client once, I uh, showed up to her house. She had a lung disease, so she'd been homebound for a while. She wearing oxygen. I sit down, say hellos, chit chat a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, well, you asked me to come here. I'm curious, what is it you want to work through? And she pulls out a notebook with a list of 20 questions or so. And the first question is, what happens when you die? And I said, I don't know. I think the second question was something like, well, what is the process of dying like? And I was like, well, do you mean what happens to the body or like the consciousness? And she said, the consciousness. I said, I don't know. The third, fourth, fifth, sixth question, I did not have any answers to. And at some point I could tell she was getting a little frustrated. And so I finally was like, oh, I see what's going on here. I see what's happening. I don't have these answers. I don't have these answers. My role is merely to support you as you figure them out for yourself or as you swim in the pool of your I don't knows and get comfortable there. Because the reality is that none of us ever will about any of this. While we live, death is the greatest mystery that ever existed. Like we will never know. And every single time I can be comfortable with some place that I don't know, the, the easier it's going to be for me to just surrender into the big fat I don't know overall. I don't have answers. I've practiced law for 10 years. Even then, I was still like, I don't know. Am I supposed to know? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew, but I don't. I don't know. The piece of paper says I know, but I don't know. I actually don't know. I don't anything. know. There's nothing. I'm not paid a lot of money for this paper. <laughs> I don't know. I still don't know. And that's all right with me. 
I don't have to know. Sometimes I wish I did, but then again, it would take all like the mystery out of life. So I don't think I want to know. I think I'm more comfortable not knowing as uncomfortable as it is. Yeah, that's that push and pull that we're always suspended by. Part of the essence of being human, isn't it? Is there anything that we haven't talked about in terms of the pandemic and some of the stuff you've been seeing and feeling and thinking about a lot that we haven't talked about yet? I really do want to underscore that this is a weird time. Not that I have to say for people to know it, but this is a weird time and it's weird for almost all of us. And death, dying, and grief right now are really ripe fields for us to consider our actual humanity in the face of all of this. That's all. <laughs> we got this. No big deal. Or we don't. We're going to die, you know? <laughs> Perfect. That's the end. <laughs> Play the music That's out. <laughs> that was Death Doula Elua Arthur. Keep up with her at Going with Grace. After the break, what's it like for a black owned funeral service during this pandemic? How do you bring your community close to grieve for a loved one when you can't even touch each other? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. Dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take. The people run in circles. It's a very, very This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The Black community has been hit hard by the coronavirus. COVID-19 mortality rates are 2.6 times higher for African Americans than for whites in the United States. In addition to the numbers, there's the grief. Traditions that once brought comfort must be amended to accommodate distance. Distance, when it's closeness, that's healing. Howard K. Hill is the owner and operator of Howard K. Hill Funeral Services in New Haven, Hartford, and Bloomfield. He was the first black president of the Connecticut Funeral Directors Association, and he's the founder of the Black Business Alliance of Connecticut. He told me that he started doing a lot more planning with grieving families over the phone instead of in person, and that he's following CDC guidelines for gatherings. He described one solution to social distancing during a funeral service. We call it a drive-through funeral service, where we have moved the casket outside of our doors and we will allow for cars to drive up to the casket to view. Uh, most often family members are on either side of the casket, 10 people on either side of the casket. They can see their friends and their family who drive up. They can greet them and then they can you know, leave. This has allowed for more people to be able to have that traditional feel where they can view the body, which is a very, very, very important aspect of the African-American funeral experience. We've just had to, we've had to alter it a little bit, but we still have that available. Grieving is such a personal thing. And it's also a cultural thing. It's a traditional thing. And when you look at the people you're serving, who's majority black people, do you think because people are adapting with you, that there might be more ways that people will create traditions of grief and grieving? Or do you think it'll go back to kind of the way it used to be once things get into what they will be? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very good question. 
I think absolutely people are going to adapt. Uh, I don't believe that uh, things will go back to normal. I think that there's going to be a lot of technology uh, inventions that are going to come out to help to keep everyone more, uh, safe so that we can get back to socializing. We're, we're social creatures, human beings. We're very, very much social, social creatures. I do think that the, that the African-American experience, you know, we, we come together when there's situations as such. And that's what actually helps to keep us bound together as much as we're divided. It's one of the things that, that neutralizes a lot of stuff and it brings us together. Uh, so I, I do think that uh, things will change, but also things are going to, I think things are going to stay the same at the same time. This is a really special position you hold. And I wonder how this has tested you, unlike all the other things that have tested you up until this point. How are you? You know, in March, not only did I lose my funeral director of 10 years, I also actually lost my father as well. And it was a, it was a one-two punch. You know, my father was... You know, there's a reason why I am who I am today. Um, so I'm not quite sure how, how I am yet. I haven't had a chance to assess that. You know, we've been working day and night, trying to serve families, trying to help families to understand how important it is for them to take care of themselves, take care of their families. I guess I just need a little bit more time to kind of figure that out, how I am. Uh, I think I'm okay. I do have a great uh, staff. I have a lovely wife at home and children who they understand what I'm doing. I think I'm okay. Uh, I'd imagine one day I'm going to crash and hit the wall or something, but uh, for right now, I'm okay. We're in survival mode right now. <laughs> Forgive me if this question is ridiculous, but do you have all your ducks in a row for when you die? Do you have like a will? Do you have your arrangements? Do you have like what song you want played? Do you have the suit picked out? Like, have you made the arrangements yourself? <laughs> I haven't made my arrangements. I have to, I have to admit I have not. However, I spent a lot of time making sure that in the event that I pass, there will be no interruptions to anyone's lifestyle, at least for a time where they can have, they have enough time to sort of transition. And I was very deliberate about that. And it took me, it took me several years to figure that out because it's, you know, you're planning for your own demise. Most people plan to, to live. You know, it's probably one of the reasons why people do not pre-plan. But it's the best thing you can do. We pre-plan all the time. And for those who have pre-planned in the past, it allows for people to be able to deal with their emotions. It allows for people to not be financially burdened with the cost of funeral services. It allows for you to kind of, you know, if you're making these arrangements, you can kind of think through the process. It's not, 
something that you have to make an, an immediate decision about because, you know, you have to be buried or something. You have time to kind of think this process through. So it's a beautiful experience once a person has done that. And it's one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your survivors. Well, is there anything, at least in terms of the, the death business that's happening in your life right now that, that I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure that you mention? We are uh, essential workers. We're working around the clock now. People are calling because they're uncertain about these times. In our, in our community, we have a lot of folks who, you know, they're from other countries and they want to be shipped back home. Uh, so we we're running into all kinds of challenges. Public has been, for the most part, they've been very understanding of our needs and our challenges. Some haven't. Uh, and for those who don't quite understand, I ask you to be a little bit more patient with us uh, and allow us some time to kind of figure things out. As you can see, our country and our state, they really haven't figured out how to address these challenges because there's so many of them. And this COVID-19 has shined a light on the long-term systemic issues that are going on in communities like mine. And as leaders, and also as people who are going through this, as we come out of this and we seek solutions on how to address our immediate COVID-19 concerns, that we take this opportunity to also address some of those long standing issues at the same time. Because this is almost like a reset in many ways. And we have an opportunity to do that if we think more long term as we address the immediate issues. That was funeral director Howard K. Hill. Find him at hkhfuneralservices.com. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. For more and to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes, visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wolf. And if you have thoughts on this episode, I would really love to hear them. Use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Be back next week. Thanks for listening.